This is Crime Beat, brought to you by Ad Taxi. Take your digital advertising to a higher level. With metrics that matter, Ad Taxi can boost your campaign performance, increase efficiency, and optimize your results. To learn more about our customized solutions, visit adtaxi.com. The following contains language that, while it may be completely appropriate for candid discussions of bank heists, car chases, penal codes, betrayal, firearms, lying, corruption in the Oval Office, love, and larceny, it may not be suitable for more delicate audiences. You're listening to Crime Beat, a behind-the-scenes podcast of fascinating true crime stories. This is Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. Harry Barber walked through a graveyard, reading headstones. He was drawn to Ohio again. He had escaped to a place he should have stayed away from, home. Harry found himself staring at one particular headstone. The dearly departed was a man named John Baker. He was two years older than me, but I'm sure they weren't going to check nothing. This was back in Youngstown. He was born in 1939, and I was born in 41. I said, hell, that's close enough. So I took his name. John Baker. Harry left his old identity in a Youngstown cemetery. He drove east into deer hunting country. Western Pennsylvania. I'll continue calling him Harry in this podcast, but the name Harry Barber was as good as dead. I'm going to tell you right now, this is my favorite part of the story. A career criminal had to reinvent himself. By being someone else, he had to learn how to fit into a community. But would he be pretending? Or would he actually convert himself into a law-abiding person? And how much of a struggle would it be to keep his secret? It was June of 1972. His brother Ronnie had been arrested, and Harry hadn't even had the chance to say goodbye. The rest of the members of Emil Denzio's bank burglary crew were awaiting trial. By the way, the judge in the Emil Denzio trial was William Matthew Byrne Jr. He had presided over the trial of Daniel Ellsberg, who leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. Byrne sentenced Emil to 20 years. The number one song in America was I Am Woman by Helen Reddy. The Oakland A's were becoming the best team in baseball. A new X-rated film called Deep Throat had debuted in theaters across America in June. The film's title inspired Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein and became a pseudonym for an anonymous source, someone who preferred to remain in the shadows. Harry Barber preferred to hide in plain sight. My name is Keith Sharon. I'm a reporter for the Southern California News Group based in Orange County. In 2003, I wrote a 10-part series for the Orange County Register about the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States when seven guys from Youngstown tried to steal $30 million from President Nixon. Then I wrote a screenplay based on the same material. I have been obsessed with this burglary for almost 20 years. This podcast is going to cover the half-century history of the top U.S. bank burglary of all time, from the moment it was just a twinkle in the eye of a master thief to the long weekend in March of 1972 when the crew went after Nixon's money, to the investigation 
in which only one of the thieves got away. To the night, this story will appear on the big screen as a Hollywood movie. This is episode five of Stealing Nixon's Millions. It can't last forever. Harry settled in the little town of Brookville, Pennsylvania. It's about 90 miles from Youngstown. Harry figured the FBI would be looking for a guy who ran away, not a guy who stuck around in the general vicinity. Brookville was a lumber town with about 4,000 hardy residents. The Red Bank Creek met the Sandy Lick Creek in the middle of town. The first thing Harry had to do was stop at the Department of Motor Vehicles. Went to Pennsylvania, told him I'd lost my license and I was going to renew it. It was that easy. John Baker was officially born again. Harry thought Brookville was the perfect place to disappear. It seemed like a quiet little town, nobody going to get involved, nobody going to give a shit. And I fit in there pretty good. Harry was wrong. Not about the fitting in part. He fit like an old pair of work boots. He was wrong about the giving a shit part. In little towns, everybody gives a shit about everybody else. I'm going to introduce you to Andrea Gerber, who grew up in Brookville. She's a very important part of this story. This is how she described her hometown in the mid-1970s. You knew everybody on the streets. I mean, that's just the way Brookville was. You know, if you didn't know what you were doing, somebody in town knew what you were doing if you didn't know. Hiding was not going to be easy for Harry. There's one thing you don't want to do is put your ass on Front Street. You know, and I'm just visiting this neighborhood, and I plan on staying there for a while. Here's the funny thing about what Harry just said. He didn't want to put his ass on Front Street, so he moved to Brookville's Main Street. He took up residence in the most interesting place in town. Harry got a room in the attic of the old Columbia Theater that had stopped screening movies in the 1950s. He agreed to fix the place for a break on the rent. The theater had a stage, and occasionally a down-and-out singer would entertain. They had Fabian and a couple other idiots come in there to perform. The last floor was the attic, and I converted the attic to my penthouse. While Harry was starting a new life, so was Richard Nixon. I would have preferred to carry through to the finish whatever the personal agony it would have involved. And my family unanimously urged me to do so. But the interests of the nation must always come before any personal consideration. From the discussions I have had with congressional and other leaders, I have concluded that because of the Watergate matter, I might not have the support of the Congress that I would consider necessary to back the very difficult decisions and carry out the duties of this office in the way the interests of the nation are required. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Nixon settled in San Clemente at what he called the Western White House. It's about 10 miles from the United California Bank in Laguna Niguel. In a matter of months, Nixon would be pardoned by new President Gerald Ford. FBI agents across the country were still looking for Harry Barber. Before he left, Nixon watched his final three movies as president. A John Wayne film called The Train Robbers with Anne Margaret, It's a Wonderful Life, which always makes me cry, 
and around the world in 80 days, which suggests to me the president was looking forward to getting out of Dodge. As long as we're on the subject of movies, as I've been telling this story and binge-watching heist movies, I've been thinking about something. Up until this point, the fast-driving, good-looking wheelman who loved Steve McQueen never talked about a love interest in his life. Think about it. Clyde had Bonnie. Jada Pinkett had Blair Underwood and set it off. Bank robber Ben Affleck fell in love with the bank manager in the town. Al Pacino robbed the bank in Dog Day Afternoon because he was in love with a man who needed money for a sex change operation. The list of bank heist couples is long and storied. As Harry established himself as John Baker in Brookville, he was about to fall in love. To make some money, Harry started working as a handyman. He got a job as a bartender in Reynoldsville, the next town over on Highway 322. Brookville was twice the size of Reynoldsville. He started driving a 1973 Monte Carlo, burnt orange with a tan roof. Just the right 1970s amount of ugly. It was a little bit showy for a guy on the down low, but if you knew Harry Barber, you knew he couldn't just have an ordinary car. On his first day on the job, Harry was behind the bar when a woman came in dressed all in black. Her name was Marlene Brady. She had come from her husband's funeral. Ron Brady had died in a single-car drunk driving accident. He had been a dump truck driver. Andrea Gerber was Marlene's niece. She was seven years old at the time and remembers losing her uncle. I remember uh, being pulled into my mom's bedroom and she was sitting there crying and told me that Uncle Ronnie died in a car wreck. Looking back all these years later, Andrea said that's the day her life changed for the better. Because that's the day Aunt Marlene met a guy she called JB. Marlene walked into the bar and noticed the bartender was new in these parts. He had blonde hair, a barrel chest, and a big gap between his two front teeth. In the dark, he kind of looked like Steve McQueen. Marlene was blonde and thin. Her hair was teased up like it was still the 1960s. The bartender could see she was hurting, so he came out from behind the bar to sit with her for a few minutes. He told her his name was John Baker. I interviewed Marlene Brady in 2003. I have to tell you, it was a little strange to talk with her about Harry because she knew him so well as JB. She said she would never forget the first time she met John Baker. He eased me, she said. I always thought that was a great comment. Well, she seemed quiet. Seemed like somebody you could get along with. But she never knew nothing about me. Marlene Brady lived in the Crestwood Trailer Park a couple of blocks from Main Street. She worked part-time in the Jefferson County Community Action Office. She was also a bartender. She was also a waitress at the American Hotel Restaurant. She drove a bright gold Pontiac Firebird. Of course Harry would find a woman with a bright gold Pontiac Firebird. Harry and Marlene fell in love on the first day they met. Andrea remembers Christmas time with Aunt Marlene and her new boyfriend, JB. I remember her and JB. One Christmas, my grandmother bought me and my cousin a dollhouse. And I remember that Christmas sitting at my grandmother's house because he had remodeled my entire downstairs of my grandmother's house. So he was very close with my grandparents. And I've actually got a picture, uh, I think, of both of them sitting on the couch, like building this dollhouse. Andrea said her Aunt Marlene was tough. Marlene felt comfortable with a gun in her hands. She loved to hunt deer. When I talked to her on the phone, Marlene told me I had caught her in the middle of canning deer meat. She had two cats, one named Penny and the other Nickel. And here's the kind of guy Harry was. He was doing some work one day at a sawmill when he saw a stray cat. 
That cat became his first companion in the old theater. Harry got to know Don and Deborah Emmerich, Marlene's brother and sister-in-law. They had a campsite near Brookville. Deborah remembers he would show up to their camp bearing gifts. He always would bring some kind of exotic fruit. There was a little fruit market there in Brookville. I believe they would order him in like different veg fruits and vegetables, and he would always bring the neatest things out to camp for us to try. Like what? Uh, fruit. I mean, I, like there was like that's with a star fruit or some like exotic cantaloupe or something he would bring out there. But, I mean, he would, you know, they, they would come out and bring food, we'd cook out. You never knew that there was anything wrong with the man. You know, you would have thought he was just a nice person. Star fruit, by the way, is also called carambola. It's native to Indonesia, and quite possibly the most exotic thing anyone from Brookville had ever eaten. The more Harry discovered about Marlene, the more cause he had for alarm. Remember, he wasn't just a new guy in town. He was wanted by the FBI. When he walked into a post office, he would see his picture on a poster. You want to hear the list of the other people who were on FBI wanted posters in the 1970s? Okay, here goes. That list includes James Earl Ray, who killed Martin Luther King Jr., and Theodore Robert Bundy, who you may know as serial killer Ted Bundy, and Harry James Barber. Harry told me he would rip his picture off the post office wall when no one was looking. And here's another thing he had to worry about. A bunch of Marlene's friends were cops. Marlene had a twin sister, Darlene, who was Andrea's mother. And how's this for a twist? Her sister was a deputy sheriff. Darlene worked in the county courthouse, taking emergency phone calls and doing secretarial work for the sheriff. Sometimes she served warrants and transported prisoners. Harry's connection to the cops didn't end there. The county sheriff was a guy named John Dinger. He was an older guy, well-liked in town. He had been elected to two terms. In his spare time, Sheriff Dinger operated a deer hunting camp in the woods outside Brookville. Dinger and Harry became good friends. It was a friendship that nearly cost one of them his freedom. As he was getting to know Harry, Dinger literally had FBI wanted posters for Harry James Barber on the walls of his office. Dinger hired Harry as a handyman at the deer hunting camp. Harry said Dinger would give him the keys to his Jeep, and Harry would load up his tools and head out to the camp to refurbish the place. And I fit in there pretty good. You became a popular guy in the town. Oh, hell, everybody loved me in town, even the sheriff. <laughs> Harry called Brookville his home, but he didn't stay put. He still had money from the bank heist, and he liked to spend it on travel. Every place he went, just before he left, he would mail a postcard to the FBI. Remember when Harry said his Uncle Emil had the balls of 20 men? Well, what about this postcard gambit? It's got to be like having 10 balls, right? Why did you do that? Just to let him know I was still living and kicking. How did you do that? I was in Hawaii. When I left Hawaii, I sent him a postcard, tell him I'm enjoying myself in Hawaii. Meanwhile, I'm already on the plane going back home just to piss him off. <laughs> Las Vegas, I sent him a postcard. Wherever I went, Florida, I sent him a postcard. And I used to go to all these places when I was a fugitive. My life never changed, just that I went different places. And I would let him know where I was and how much I was enjoying myself. Harry was doing this long before Leonardo DiCaprio was taunting police in the 2002 movie Catch Me If You Can. We almost could have included Catch Me If You Can on our list of top bank heist movies. Some of the real-life Frank Abagnale's crimes involved bank fraud, 
but it didn't really fit in the bank heist genre. Number four on our list is Spike Lee's Inside Man. It has the action of a bank robbery and the genius planning of a bank burglary. Of all the bank heist movies on the list, Inside Man has the best plan. It's got a great cat and mouse feel with master thief Clive Owen trying to outwit detective Denzel Washington. Jodie Foster is good as the fixer who tries to protect the contents of one safe deposit box from being exposed. Number three is a great little movie you probably didn't see. It's called Hell or High Water, and it's about a string of small-time bank burglaries in a depressed region of West Texas with Jeff Bridges and Chris Pine. Bridges plays an old-time cowboy-type Texas Ranger who patiently stalks the bank thieves. Chris Pine plays a nice-guy thief, while his brother, played by Ben Foster, is a crazed lunatic with a gun. In this genre, there's always a nice-guy thief paired up with a crazed lunatic with a gun. There is a great final scene where the two lead characters meet up and have a tense discussion while one of them is carrying a shotgun and the other is carrying a pistol. In real life, Harry Barber turned out to be the nice guy thief. Harry not only did some work remodeling the sheriff's office, he started working with prison inmates, teaching them carpentry and other handyman skills. He took the job praying that none of his new students would recognize him from his days pulling crimes with Emil Dinzio. Everyone in Brookville started calling him JB. I remember I always liked JB. I mean, I never saw, never heard him raise his voice. He was just always a nice guy. Harry worked on the senior center, the jewelry store, and the funeral parlor. He remodeled the home of the elderly couple who owned the gas station on Main Street. When there was a problem with the windows at the bank, Harry was hired to work during off hours. The bank manager gave him the keys. Sheriff John Dinger laughed when he told me about the bank years ago when I got him on the phone. Now, if that isn't coming full circle, I don't know what is. He was he was part of the family. You know, my grandparents on my mom's side lived in Elwood City. And I remember him going down to their house for, for different holidays whenever we went down there. My aunt and uncle, my mom's brother is still alive, and his, his wife, they live in Beaver Falls. And they always, you know, if I talk to my uncle, he always says, if you talk to JB, and, you know, because he used to hang out with them, too. Isn't it funny you know, they, that JB was a fugitive, and he was surrounded by cops everywhere he went? Everywhere he went, yeah. Yep. And now a couple of words about other things we do here at the Southern California News Group. At the Daily News, we report the news. We don't make it. We've been the source of readers' trust to cover everything from crime and politics to sports and schools. Get the news that matters most. Subscribe now for only pennies a day. Call 1-877-469-6133. Harry's life in Brookville started to unravel in the summer of 1978. That was the same summer Mork and Mindy and WKRP in Cincinnati first appeared on television. The number one movie in America was Saturday Night Fever, and three of the top six songs on the Billboard chart were from the movie. Night Fever, Stayin' Alive, and How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees. It was the height of the disco era. That was the summer Bruce Springsteen released Badlands. Well, I believe in the love that you gave me. I believe in the faith that can save me. I believe and I hope and I pray that someday it may raise me above these bad lands. 
I love that song. It's almost as if Harry was singing it to Marlene. One night, Harry and Marlene were in their trailer with nothing much to do. Marlene decided to start a load of laundry that included a pair of Harry's pants. Harry had worn those pants for years, dating back to his Youngstown days. The pants had also been dry cleaned in Youngstown, and the dry cleaner had written H.J. Barber on the pocket. Marlene read that name and asked innocently enough, J.B., who's H.J. Barber? Harry had a decision to make, and he made it quickly. He had been John Baker for more than seven years. He had rebuilt his life. Everybody loved J.B. And she asked you, who is H.J. Barber? What'd you tell her? It was me. <laughs> Told her I was a fugitive. Harry laid out the whole story. The bank, the safe deposit boxes, Nixon's money, and his getaway. Harry told Marlene to turn him in, and she would get a $5,000 reward. She didn't do that. When I talked to Marlene years later, she told me that Harry might have been afraid, but she was excited. Living with a fugitive, she said, was the most exciting time of her life. What Marlene did next is a bit fuzzy. No one really knows how long she kept the secret. Harry said he assumed she would tell her sister Darlene, who was a sworn deputy. And that's exactly what she did. We just don't know when that happened. At some point, Darlene Carberry went to her boss, Sheriff John Dinger. Andrea remembers asking her mother about why she went to the sheriff. I just recently asked my mom that because I guess I always blamed it on my mom. She said something about how because of her working for the sheriff's office, whenever Marlene told her about it, she had to let John Dinger know. She said that whenever she went to make sure that she got in no trouble for knowing about it. She told Dinger about the United California bank heist and that his friend, J.B.'s real name, was Harry Barber. Dinger reportedly told her to, quote, lay off. I'll handle it on my own in my own time, end quote. That's what it said in court documents. Darlene approached Harry and said this. The sheriff wants to talk to you. Okay. So I go see the sheriff? Oh, you did go see him? Oh, yes. He oh, yes. I told him he had two choices. Arrest me or don't fuck with me. And he left me alone. How long? Forever. Here's the thing. Harry didn't get arrested in the summer of 1978 or in the summer of 1979. J.B. continued to thrive in Brookville. In 1980, a Brookville deputy named Joe Faustine called the FBI to tell them Harry Barber had been living in their town for eight years. Darlene told Andrea that Faustine must have overheard her conversation with Dinger. She figured he was standing at the door listening, and she thought that he's the one that called the FBI. What's weird is that Faustine overheard Darlene's conversation with Dinger in 1978. He didn't drop a dime until almost two years later. On May 12, 1980, Harry was doing some repair work at the Big Country Campground on the outskirts of Brookville. He got tapped on the shoulder. They asked me who I was, and I said, I'm John Baker. What do you want to know? I gave them all the information I had. They put me in the car, took me to Pittsburgh. Then I went before a magistrate. She turned me loose. But they still had me in a holding tank because the FBI couldn't prove who I was and I could prove who I was. Then how'd they get you? Took me to a, took me to a judge. Judge says, get no bond. But he did get one phone call. Harry called Marlene. He was upset she didn't get the reward. And I said, you went this far with everybody. 
why didn't you do it yourself and get the money? She didn't want the money. She wanted him. The news quickly made its way across the country. Frank Calley, the FBI agent who had tracked the Dinzio gang from the moment he went into that vault, got a call from FBI agent Paul Chamberlain. I heard about it, but not, I got a call from Chamberlain and said we got him. I think it was Chamberlain calling me. We got, got Harry. And what, what did you think? I said, about time. Deborah Emmerich couldn't get her head around what had just happened. I didn't even believe that he was that person that he was. And somebody, somebody in the family said, I'll go to the post office and look up number 58 or 68 on the wanted list. And I did. <laughs> there he was. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. No, I could not. By this time, Andrea was a teenager, and she was crushed. I remember the house that my mother lived in now. I remember one time there was a bunch of whispering going on, and I was older than my brothers, and I remember her sitting me down in the living room, and she told me that JB got arrested. And I was upset, and I said, why did he get arrested? And she said, they're saying that he robbed a bank. Years later, Andrea tracked down Harry Barber. I remember sitting on my patio talking to him, and I, I, I voiced my opinion as to how I was angry at whoever turned him in. And he says, you can't be angry about that. He goes, you know, until I was caught, he goes, I always was looking over my shoulder. He goes, once I was caught, he goes, I don't look over my shoulder anymore. Harry Barber wasn't the only person arrested in Brookville. The FBI charged Sheriff John Dinger with harboring a fugitive. It was quite a spectacular trial. Newspapers all across the country covered it. Darlene Carberry testified against the sheriff. He was eventually acquitted. You might expect the residents of Brookville to be quite upset with the former bank burglar who came to their town, lied to them, and got their sheriff in quite a lot of trouble. And you would be wrong. Residents of Brookville took up a collection and raised $93,000 for Harry's defense. Harry James Barber was flown to California where he was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. He did three. What happened you can't change? Uh... Thank God nobody got killed, nobody got hurt. Uh, it was a phase of my life. I wish that never happened, but here again, you can't change anything. Can't change anything. I mean, we were smart enough to do what we did, but we weren't that smart to get away with it. Harry Barber lives today in the same trailer in Montclair where I found him. For the last few years, his mother Viola lived with him. He took care of her until she died in October of 2017. Ronnie Barber's wife left him not long after he got out of prison. Ronnie raised twin girls, Veronica and Kendra. Veronica said near the end of his life, he would walk from his living room to his car struggling to breathe. He died in the year 2000 after battling emphysema for most of his adult life. Phil Christopher is still alive. He's been in and out of prison several times. In 2005, he co-authored a book called Super Thief. Christopher's co-author, Rick Perello, told me the book is being made into a movie. Chuck Mulligan died in 2014. Emil Dinzio served eight years in prison for the United California bank heist. In 1996, Emil and James Dinzio were arrested in upstate New York. Police said they were casing a store with the intent to burglarize it. A cop interrupted their plan, and the two brothers ran. When the cop caught James, Emil grabbed the cop's gun. 
pointed it at the cop's head and threatened to kill him. After a short standoff, Emil gave up the gun. The Dinzio brothers went back to prison. James Dinzio died of cancer in 2008. Emil Dinzio was released from prison in March of 2018. His daughter Melissa celebrated with him when he came home. She posted pictures on Facebook of her and her dad smiling next to a white limousine. Harry never saw Emil and James again. He hopes he sees Emil at least one more time. In the years since the heist, everybody who meets Harry Barber, if they know he was involved, they ask him the same question. Where's the rest of the money? Listen to the question that has been on Deborah Emmerich's mind all these years. Where's all the stuff? <laughs> Where's the money? I mean, how could you do that and then, and, you know, just come to a stupid little town of Brookville? I mean, why the hell wouldn't you go where it was nice and spend your money? That always puzzled me. The money recovered by the FBI adds up to a couple million dollars. There has to be more, right? There is one person in the world who is sure there is more money. Harry Barber. He never got his full cut. Do you think there's more coming? Where did it go to? I don't know. No one ever found it. That's right. So that means it's still got to be someplace. <laughs> you have hope, right? No, I'm positive. I don't have hope. You know that a payday is coming. Yeah, and it should be bigger because James has died since. I don't have any idea if Harry will ever see his cut of the money. What I do know is that if he does, Emil will make him promise to keep his mouth shut. Harry told me he never saw Marlene again, although he did talk to her on the phone one more time. In 2008, Marlene Brady found out she had pancreatic cancer. Since JB left, hers had not been a happy life. She had a couple of bad boyfriends, and at least one of them abused her. She had had this boyfriend that had beat her up pretty bad, and the cops come into our house one morning. Her forehead was huge and black and blue. What I was told was that the boyfriend at the time had picked up her coffee table and hit her with it. I remember him just because I knew that he did really hurt her. When the cancer had choked most of the life out of Marlene, Andrea visited her in the hospital. We knew my aunt was going to die. And the night that me and my daughter were leaving the hospital, I stopped in her door and I said, Marlene, I said, who was the best boyfriend you ever had? And she never hesitated. She just said, JB. Andrea did some quick internet sleuthing and found Harry's phone number. He didn't know that Marlene was sick, and so I wanted him to know that so that I felt like they needed to say their goodbyes. Harry called Marlene in her hospital room. The last time I talked to her was when she was dying. As you can tell from listening to this podcast, Harry talks on tape like he doesn't have a sentimental bone in his body. But in private, he does. And so does Andrea. As she was talking to me on the phone, she was holding a vase Harry made in prison in a ceramics class. She sent me a picture of the vase as we were talking. It's tall and thin, like it would hold palm fronds tan and dark brown with orange spots. On the bottom it says, I love you. It's signed, Harry, 1981. Over all these years, she has kept that vase and other ceramic items he mailed to her. I gave him the hospital number, and I know wherever I went to see Marlene then, maybe the next day she told me, she said, JB found me. I said, oh, did he? 
I know in the past he has he has expressed to me how much he loved Marlene. He always said that he always wanted to go back to Brookville because those were the best years of his life. Andrea talked to Harry on the phone just before Marlene's funeral. He asked me if I would do him a favor. He wanted me to go to the flower shop, and he wanted me just to get a single red rose, and he wanted me to have written on the card, Love you always, JB, I think is what it was. And I laid the flower in the casket with her. Next time on Crime Beat Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions, Hollywood Comes Calling. The story appears in the Orange County Register in 2003, and producers from film companies begin to call. You'll hear the ups and downs of writing a screenplay and how it took 15 years for the movie Finding Steve McQueen to get made. The best way you can support this podcast is to give us high ratings and reviews and tell your friends to check out our work. Thanks for listening. Crime Beat Season 1 was produced by the Southern California News Group. The executive editor was Frank Pine. The senior editor was Todd Harmonson. Production and original music by Michael Crow. Sound editing by Jeff Gritchen. Graphics by Kurt Snibby. And I want to give special thanks to podcasters who inspired this work. Amy Wilson and Amber Hunt on Accused. Sarah Koenig on Serial. Brian Reed on S-Town. Chris Gofford on Dirty John. Madeline Barron on In the Dark. Nate DeMeo on The Memory Palace, and Phoebe Judge on Criminal.